Hi, welcome back to Rorick Knows Podcast, helping you become a better you. And we're especially privileged today to have Dr. Ed Rodriguez, the chair of plastic surgery at NYU with us today. Ed, welcome. Hey, Rod, how are you? Good to be here with you. It's great. Great to have you with us. We're going to talk about a fascinating topic, face transplants. And really, Eddie, you're you're really the world expert today on face transplants. And, and really, we're going to talk a little bit about how you got to this level, but also one of your amazing patients. And I saw this in the New York Post. I think he's three years post out. He had a double, uh, a double hand and full face transplant, and, and he's in love. Isn't that, That's yeah. amazing. So, so tell it's such a gratifying feeling to see these patients do well. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, before we talk about him, tell me a little bit about how did you ever get interested in facial transplantation? I mean, obviously, Dr. Rodriguez is a world-famous craniofacial surgeon, and he's, you know, he's a highly skilled, and, you know, he heads the team that does all these transplants. So, so how do, I mean, I know you trained at Hopkins, so how did you get interested in face transplants? Yeah, it's a great story, and I'll, and I'll try to summarize it uh, for you and your viewers. But um, everything began back in Hopkins, I would say probably uh, 2001, when we have one of our esteemed colleagues by the name of Maria Simeonov, who was the first right. uh, American surgeon to perform their first face transplant in the U.S. And she presented some of the work on her rat studies of um, performing some of the face transplants. At that point, it wasn't even a clinical reality. Right. And my main mentor, Paul Manson, who you know very well, and, and he respects you greatly, he goes to me, Eddie, this is the kind of stuff you should be doing in the future. And I, I thought about it, but it really didn't capture my mind. But <laughs> if we kind of move the clock forward, uh, part of our rotation in Maryland is to be involved in shock trauma. And, you know, we dealt with a lot of horrific uh, casualties related to motor vehicle accidents or ballistic injury burns. And then I went on to Taiwan to do some fellowship with with kind of one of our premier esteemed colleagues in microsurgery by the name of Fu Chan Wei. And when I was abroad, abroad you know, we were in the midst of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I finished my fellowship, and when I came back to the U.S., a good portion of my job was at shock trauma. And Paul Manson was being asked by Walter Reed, uh, National, uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center and National Bethesda, one was the Army and one was the Navy, to assist with these casualties. And he said, well, I, you know, I got something better. I'm gonna send my young protege. <laughs> and I started seeing these injuries and they were devastating. We, had, we hadn't seen anything like this probably since World War II with trench warfare because these improvised explosive devices right. were highly explosive mechanisms were you know just taking off limbs but leading to horrific facial injury because the soldiers you know they had a helmet but their face was exposed so you had a lot of tissue loss around the mouth around the eyelids the nose very difficult areas and despite all the levels of sophistication in conventional surgery and even in microsurgery the right. quality of our results really were suboptimal. Right, that, that's amazing. And, and of course, because of the armor and technology, they were living, because in the past they wouldn't right. live, right? So Right, and if you, if you look at all the wars that we've been at, you know, the survival of our soldiers through Iraq and Afghanistan has been the highest it's ever been, because exactly what you're reflecting on, the protective armor. Good. So then, you know, we, we put together a grant uh, through the Office of Naval Research, and there were a number of different enterprises that were putting 
grants for lightweight armor, right. a variety of different things. And we put together a grant which was entitled Face Transplant for the Wounded Warrior. And that gained uh, some support for initial uh, clinical uh, basic science research to move towards clinical face transplant. Well, so and, and that's kind of where it began, kind yeah. of at the bench, and then we took it to the bedside. Yeah. So when did you do the first face transplant? I mean, wh when did you physically, when did you do that? The first face transplant was in March of 2012 on Richard Lee Norris, which was a patient that I had to care for many years and actually was referred to us um, from another state and had had multiple uh, surgeries prior to arriving to us. And, and he had the typical deformity that I consider is basically untreatable. He no nose, no lips, loss of the lower jaw, loss of the upper jaw, cheeks were compromised, missing tongue, you know, a lot of injuries. And he was kind of dependent on a tracheostomy for breathing and on a feeding tube to supplement his nutrition. So pretty bad injury. And that was done at NYU? No, that was the first one. I did that at Baltimore at the Shock Trauma That's Center. That was the first face transplant I did, which encompassed all the tissue from the top of the head, forehead, eyelids, nose, upper lower lips, chin, skin of the neck, in front of the ears. Wow. And then inside, the reason it was pretty comprehensive is that I included the upper maxilla, so the upper jaw with 16 teeth and the palate, wow. and then the lower, the mandible with 16 teeth, the floor of the mouth, and the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. And we did that all as one unit. Yeah. with soft tissue, skeleton, and all the motor nerves, tongue, everything came together as one unit. Yeah. Now, what Dr. Rodriguez is talking about is an amazingly complex procedure, and you just can't go to the operating room and do it. I mean, how, uh, how long did you uh, prep your team, and how big was your team when you did that? Right, and, and, and that's an important question. Rod, this is not just something that, uh, like what we normally do in our typical practices, that we identify an issue and we're ready to go to the operating room. This, this is an operation that you really have to rehearse multiple times. We practice in, in a typical tissue lab, a recipient and donor operation. We practice simultaneously, and we probably did that for about 15 times. Wow. And we translate that from the tissue lab into the operating room where we just practice in the operating room setting with our nursing staff. We practice with all the instrumentation, figure out what we need to, to do. Because I think what, what most of the viewers need to consider, when you're performing a face transplant, you have to keep in mind that there are other individuals that require life-saving organs. And in Richard Lee Norris's case, not only was a face procured for Richard, but heart, two lungs, two kidneys, liver, pancreas, all these organs, excuse me, simultaneously went to other patients. So you have to be able to orchestrate that. So these life-saving operations are so successful. So we practice many times to ensure that we, we know exactly what to do. And we do it so many times, Rod, that we just do it automatically. We can do it in our sleep. And we know that once we identify the ideal donor, which is an important element, that we are ready to go and we will drop everything and go do this operation. Wow. So how long did that first one take? The first one, since I had never done it, took me 36 hours, okay. uh, 36 hours straight. And you were and, there the uh, whole time? Absolutely. I know. Absolutely. See, um, I, this is the difference. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the team leader, but leaders lead by leading. Yeah. That's why I was successful. 
Yeah, you can't break away from this. And I often tell people, like, how do you have the strength to do it? And I often say, well, you know, for all the mothers in the world, no one ever questioned how long do you have to stay awake to care for your sick child. So right. when you're caring for an, an individual and a family whose life is completely dependent on us, we can't stop until we get that patient safely to the recovery room. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. So, so fast forward. Then, then you went to NYU as a chair, and then, then how many transplants have you done at NYU? At NYU, Please. Um, the recent one, which I will barely mention, okay, <laughs> um, but it's not public. I won't. Uh, we'll have done four. Four. Wow. Four at NYU, and all of them are really historic ones and different ones. So, so yeah. let's talk about this gentleman that was in the New York Post because yeah. that's certainly fa and that was groundbreaking, unique, published in the journal. So, uh, tell us about that. There's a young guy. He had a bad motor vehicle accident, right? Absolutely. Uh, so this is uh, his name is public, so I can mention him. Joe DeMeo is a wonderful kid, um, a very nice Italian family from New Jersey. Joe's incredibly hardworking, and um, he loved his work, and his employers, they're a wonderful family, and he normally worked the day shift, um, and occasionally he worked the night shift, but when he did the night shift, when he was asked to do it, he often would get some rest and do it. So this day was a little bit unusual because he was out, he had the day off, so he was out with his father actually playing golf out all day having a great time with his father and then later that evening got called if he would be willing to cover the night shift which he did unfortunately driving home uh, he fell asleep on the vehicle and flipped the car and probably what's considered one of the more dangerous interstates in new jersey but not just new jersey but for the whole country when we looked at the research it's a very dangerous highway so he flipped the vehicle and was trapped he was restrained with um, the cross strap and the, the oh. waist belt. And a, a wonderful good Samaritan jumped the, um, the highway and actually released the seatbelt, saved them, and the car immediately exploded. But, you know, oh. he had already sustained over 80% total body surface area, third-degree burns. So it was, he was badly, badly burned. That, that's amazing he even survived. Absolutely. And Rod, you and I know that patients that have that amount of burn, inhalational injury, lung injury, right. um, but he didn't have any of that. You know, he was meant to survive, but he did lose his face. You know, he didn't, he lost his eyelids, lips, and his arms were completely scarred and burned. Wow. He survived. Uh, he was in the hospital for quite some time and underwent many surgical procedures, skin grafting to get him better. But the worst thing for Joe, uh, the patient, was that he lost all of his independence. Uh, his mother had to feed him. His mother had to bathe him. His mm. mother had to dress him. And this was a kid that already had plans to have his own apartment, was set to go, really had big aspirations, and that was absolutely destroyed. So when he came to me, you know, we talked about face, but for him, the most important thing was to have his hands because with his hands, he could have independence right. and he could thrive again. Now, it's important that your viewers know that there have been two separate attempts in the world to do a face and bilateral hands. One was attempted in Paris by a good colleague of yours and mine, Laurent right. Lantieri, right. and the other one was attempted by the group at uh, Brigham and Women's. 
And the first patient who underwent face and bilateral hand unfortunately died from infectious complications within 30 days of the surgical procedure. And the second patient in Boston, uh, although survived, lost the hands within uh, uh, several days. Yeah. So there was really no proven track record that this can even be successfully performed. But I felt that there should be no rational explanation why this should fail. So it kind of allowed us to really think about the process a little bit better. And I did change things a bit. And I think it's important, you being one of the best editors of our premier journal, sharing information, uh, we're able to learn a lot from each other. And right. I think one of the reasons why our team was successful is learning from what these other groups as pioneers took on. So we learned from their experiences. Yep. And, and so uh, how long after his injury did you do this procedure? We did his injury probably close to two years afterwards. That's amazing. And then how long did this procedure take? So this one was tricky just to highlight a few things. Um, he had a very high PRA. PRA kind of defines the antibody level, which means it makes it very hard. We have a narrow window identifying the donor. Right. So just to go back, we highlighted when you first asked me, my first operation was 36 hours. Right. The set, the, then I came to New York and then I did that operation on the firefighter. That operation, I got it to 25. Wow. Always trying to get it down. The, th the third operation I did on Cameron Underwood from California, I got that one to 25. So my goal with Joe was to be able to do a face and two arms under 24. And thankfully, I was able to do that in 23 hours. But I have a remarkable team, Rod. And, yeah. um, oh, I know. I mean, to do that and, and to do a face transplant and arms, that's unbelievable. Yeah. It, it was a very well orchestrated um, dance. It, it, we didn't miss a beat. You know, there's yeah. a lot of organizational planning that goes into that. And, and Joe was right-hand dominant. So the first thing that I wanted to do was you, you, you have to amputate his arm that's non-functional. And the first transplant we did was his dominant hand. So we got the right hand on first. Okay. The dissection of the right hand on the donor, that took about six hours. And then we took that to the recipient room, Joe's room, and we started connecting that. And, and we do it in a systematic manner where we connect the radius and the ulna. Mm -hmm. The bones have to be appropriately positioned so that also both arms are at the same length when they're lying by their side in repose. And also the, the, the pull of the tendons, whether it's the extensors or the flexors, of which there are 24 of them, have to pull in the same manner functionally. So once the right hand was being attached and connected and we got vascularity, then I gave the green light to remove the left arm on the donor and reattach the left arm. And then once both arms were doing pretty well, then I went ahead and I usually uh, procure the face on the donor, and by that time, I have green light for what we call all solid organ procurement. So at that point, once I'm about to remove the face, we take out the heart, two kidneys, liver, lungs, everything comes out in unison. Those organs all get packaged in coolers, and they go on their way via helicopter or emergent ambulance to their locations, to the appropriate hospital, so that those patients can receive their life-saving organs. 
Amazing. That, Amazing. Yeah, and that goes, we go into the recipient room and then we finish the operation at 23 hours. It's all done. That's unbelievable to do all that in 23 hours. That's unbelievable. And, and now let's fast forward is in closing, I, I saw this story and I thought it was remarkable. So now, yeah, and, and I think you told me that this is a nurse that he's, uh, yeah. he's dating and stuff. So isn't that amazing? They're one, they're a wonderful couple, Rod. They met each other. They've been together. So Joe's dreams have been fulfilled. You know, he's, he lives in an apartment with her. He loves muscle cars. He drives independently. He sends me pictures driving the Pacific Coast Highway in California. Really? He's, absolutely. He's with his girlfriend, and she's a wonderful young lady. And we hired her at NYU. She's one of our OR staff. <laughs> Phenomenal. So he's driving, with, he's driving and back to doing things? Driving. He, he's completely independent. You know, he drives to his appointments from New Jersey to Manhattan. All his, you know, he's... Everything that he wanted to do, he's achieved. Um, there's videos of him flipping pizzas. He likes to cook. All the things that he wanted to do, wow. he's able to do. And I'll tell you, there's nothing that brings greater satisfaction to and gratification to a surgeon than to see an individual live the life independently that they desire to live. Yeah, I mean, truly a modern mer medical miracle, but based upon the incredible, highly skilled group like uh, what Dr. Rodriguez is talking about. I mean, it's unique in the world. I mean, what you've done at NYU and and I, you know, I know all your faculty. So what what a team approach. That's yeah. unbelievable. So kudos to you. And, you. I mean, that's um, unparalleled. So so what do you see next for face transplants? I mean, obviously you know you can't do these in very many places in the world so what do you see right. next for face transplants ed eddie what i think the, the next frontier um when we're dealing with a face um we can we can transplant tissue i think the important thing is are the nervous elements and in the face we deal with the peripheral nervous system we deal with the sensory which provides sensation and we deal with facial motor function that provides movement to the face I think we're ready to cross into the central nervous system. And yeah. I've been preparing for this quite a lot. And as I think about it, it's about transplanting the face with an eyeball. Um, there are plenty of individuals that have lost sight, right. whether it's from our wars. And as you know, as we talked about these improvised explosive devices and these high energy forces of ballistics, what we've seen in a lot of our soldiers that the injury to one globe, as it injures the eyeball, it injures the optic nerve, and the propagation of energy actually goes all the way to the chiasm, which is where both optic nerves exit. Right. And that propagation of injury, now we're beginning to see some consequences in their only remaining globe. So I think one of the important elements is to be able to potentially consider transplanting the eye, and, uh, and I'm not going to say that we're going to restore vision, but we all know that the globe is like a camera. Right. So if we're able to bring the camera back and we're able to retain the, the vitality of a retina and are able to connect the vasculature of the eye, which is off the, it's the ophthalmic vein, the ophthalmic artery, which come off the internal carotid artery and the uh, 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 cavernous sinus and connect the optic nerve, we, would, we don't know what's going to happen in the central nervous system, but I already have enough proof um, that it can be done. Can be done. Wow, man, done. that's that's as close to brain transplant as we get so far, right? I mean, we're, we're getting close. We're getting close. <laughs> <Rob>. It's <laughs> un, it's unbelievable. So, uh, 
Uh, amazing. I, I must say, this is just totally revolutionary and groundbreaking. I mean, this is Nobel Prize stuff, man. I tell you what, I mean, kudos to you and your team, Eddie. I mean, and it's all, you know, I'm really proud of it as plastic surgeons. So, thank you. I mean, please send us your comments and thoughts. This is a wow. A total wow, Eddie. So I cannot thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy practice. I know um, you're always busy, and I, I can't wait to see what's next. And what's, my what, pleasure. My so, pleasure. Thank you for having you me. Bet. It's my pleasure to have you with us. Okay, take care. Dr. Ed Rodriguez, Chair of Plastic Surgery at NYU. Phenomenal. Thank you.